Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, last week we sat down with the team at Best Case, Worst Case podcast, and there was so much to talk about and unpack that we had to split the episode into part one and part two. So if you're just joining us, you might want to go back to the previous episode and start there. It's called The Big Crossover Episode Part One. And while you are scrolling back, don't forget to check out our bonus episodes dropping on Tuesdays throughout season three. On that note, if you've got a burning question for Catherine, then send it to our Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories, and we'll be sure to include it in upcoming episodes. As always, the links will be in the show notes, including the link to Best Case, Worst Case podcast. And with that, roll on part two of the big crossover episode. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer of CBS's Criminal Minds, and still rolling on Criminal Minds Evolution Season 16. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor and executive producer and writer on Audible's Midwest Monster. Jim, we're really lucky today. We have back another part of our big crossover episode. Again, new title big crossover episode with the ladies from the Stop the Killing (laughs) podcast. So if y'all would introduce yourselves, I'm going to reverse the order. Sarah, could you introduce yourself to our listeners again, please? Sure. I am Sarah Ferris, and I am a true crime podcaster and the creator of Conning the Con, Clueless the Long Con, Guilty Greenie, and I work with my fabulous co-host, Catherine Schweit. It's so nice to be here and see you guys again. I am Catherine Schweit. I'm a retired FBI agent. I'm the author of Stop the Killing and work on the Stop the Killing podcast with Sarah, of course. And my area of expertise is mass shootings because everybody's got to have a fun discussion topic when you go to a dinner party. That's right. And so, Kate, I just have to start off by reminding people where we were in our last episode. We were talking about the FBI studying mass killings and definitions of mass killings and your expertise. But what I really wanted to dig into in this episode is talking to you about the Sandy Hook massacre. There may be people in this country, but certainly around the world who aren't familiar with that. So can you just give us kind of a 30,000 foot view of it? And then I am determined to ask you some really specific questions about that case, because it's just a, well, it's horrific. But as a prosecutor, I have so many questions, especially after the recent civil trial. So tell us what the Sandy Hook massacre was. Okay, I'm going to do that in between all the sirens going on outside. So bear with me. So the Sandy Hook massacre, December 14th, 2012, it was an individual who lived near this elementary school, actually killed his mother the morning of, and then he came to the school a few miles from his home. And that's the Sandy Hook Elementary School. 
I think especially for our international listeners, I just want to tell everyone that generally speaking in this country, elementary school is first through about fifth grade. So somewhere between ages like six to 10, that's the children that attend that school level. Exactly. Some schools here have kindergartens also, the preschool, but this school in the first few classrooms had the youngest children right across from the school's main office where you can keep an eye on them. And this shooter, you know, used his rifle to blast through the front door, which is an unusual occurrence in and of itself. And then he looked to a classroom, the windows were covered, the lights were off. He went past that classroom. He went to a second classroom and a third classroom. And he stepped into those classrooms and murdered almost everybody in those classrooms. On his way through the front door, they heard the commotion Several people stepped into the hallway at different times, and those people who stepped into the hallway, including the principal and the school counselor, were killed immediately before he even got to the classroom. In total, there were six women killed who worked at the school, and there were 20 children, pretty much all six-year-olds, a couple of them are seven. They were all murdered in the classrooms. You know, one of the things I always think about when I think about these horrific school shootings, which just keep happening. I can't help but think about the first responders, the EMTs, the police officers, detectives, agents, people who respond to this sort of horrific, violent act. And they're the ones who have to deal with the scene as it is with all of those well, murdered people, but murdered children, especially. I know uh, in my own career dealing with child homicides and from talking to first responders and police and detectives and agents, that's the worst thing they see. You know, it's the worst thing is children who've been murdered, that everyone has a really hard time dealing with it. Kate, can you just take us through what you did? What was your role in, in that particular massacre and what happened to the offender? Francie, before Kate does that. I would like to say that I've talked in detail with Andre Simmons, who was my profiling partner back in the FBI. And he, to this day, carries a tremendous weight on his shoulders from having had to go and work that crime scene. And the impact it has had on him is visible. It's undeniable. That was the worst case that he had ever worked on in his entire career. And I'm sure that every law enforcement officer, every EMT, every person who responded to that scene has had a similar experience. I completely agree with you. I spoke to parents the week after as part of a White House team that I was working with. And, you know, their emotions are just as raw today as they were back then when you hear them speak about it today. And I think part of it is this was really the first time that we had seen a situation where we had so many young children killed. And for the first responders who showed up, I will say this. I mean, you're going to get this picture in your head. Here's what happened specifically. The school had active shooter training. They had just had it a few weeks earlier. They knew how to train in case a shooter came to the school. And many people don't know that. And the shooter came into the classrooms and found the children where they were shown where and how to hide, in one case, in a bathroom, where there were a dozen little bodies shot to death at close range with a high-powered rifle. Children who couldn't be identified because of the damage done by this high-powered rifle at the doorway of a bathroom. The first responders were overwhelmed. Newtown is a town of about 5,000 people. Fortunately, there was a state patrol officer for the state police 
They had a local police department and the state police were right there. So they actually managed the investigation, which helped that small town. But imagine who came to that scene. Everybody who came to that scene knew somebody at that school. Yeah, of course they did with only 5,000 people. They either had kids there themselves, went there themselves as a kid, had their kids just recently going there or new kids that went there. That's, yeah, you're right. That's horrible. Plus there were some missteps that made it even more difficult for the first responders. You know, in law enforcement, we call it clearing a building. And so in order to clear the building, you open every cupboard and every door and any place where anybody might be hiding. You're looking for bad guys, but you're also looking for victims, right? And people who might be survivors. Well, the clearing of the building was so challenging. There were missteps that it took them three full times to go through the school. It took them hours to clear the building. So these first responders had to continue to go back and back and back into these rooms. It was very hard. I know our SWAT team from Connecticut They were out doing uh, trills and practicing nearby, and they responded to the scene. And they were part of the team that cleared the buildings. And the mental stress that those agents underwent was terrible. So when did you get called to investigate or oversee whatever you were doing there for Sandy Hook? So after the Sandy Hook shooting occurred, there, of course, was just this huge outcry of, oh my gosh, what is happening? These babies were killed. And the White House responded to that. The Obama White House responded to that in part by saying, we're going to use all the resources that we have in the executive. So HHS, think of all the letters that we have in the federal government, Health and Human Services, Department of Education, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security. And he ordered Vice President Biden to put a boutique team together. And I joined that team for the FBI because basically I was nearby. And sometimes you just get voluntold. So I was working on national security matters and working in our component that handles crisis response. I was working in CERG. And suddenly I was thrust into this group and I was meeting every day with this, these people from these different agencies. And we were trying to figure out what happened up there, what did law enforcement do, what they should have done that was better. And that's all I worked on for like the next five years and then until I retired. Well, I'd love to hear what were some of your findings, what mistakes were made, what improvements can we make? Can, can you talk a little bit about all that? Absolutely. You know, probably the most important thing for the FBI that came out of that, we supported and put together training for law enforcement, tens of thousands of law enforcement officers. Like I worked on the State Department's new active shooter training a few years ago. So now their training, State Department is training people worldwide on this methodology of what is the safest way to get to the shooter and take the shooter out or arrest him, but stop the shooting. And what is that methodology? So we did training. We trained 230 of our FBI tactical instructors to teach that training to law enforcement in their communities for free. What drew you to the conclusion that law enforcement needed more training? How can it stop the killing? What we found is that the shootings occur in the end in minutes most of the time, 70% of them, five minutes or less. So that means that if there is going to be a police response, it has to be even shorter than that. And also on the other side, the target has to be hardened, meaning that the schools have to have all locked doors. I told you that this kid shot through the door at the school. That is incredibly unusual. We had never seen a situation where a shooter went through the door in any of the research that the FBI did. And they've done 20 years of research. We hardly ever see a breached door like that. We see internal doors that are unlocked. The bathroom door had no lock on it in the elementary school where these children were killed. And one of the other things that we found is we pushed out nationally 
the run height fight messaging, which was developed by the city of Houston's uh, mayor's office. It created a standard response for everybody in terms of how you train people, run, hide, fight. But it's the three things that we knew everybody did all the time. If when a shooting starts, a lot of people run, some people hide, and occasionally you get somebody who has to fight the shooter. We found in our initial research at the FBI that of the 160 shootings that we tied together over 14 years, 13% of the shooters were stopped by an unarmed civilian or a group of civilians. And so that told us if the civilians know that their first choice should be to flee the area, that's the best. And I'll tell you, there were nine children who survived at Sandy Hook because they fled the building in the classroom where one of the shootings occurred. And when they fled, they survived. And when I talked to the Sandy Hook parents the week after the shooting, they were angry and raw. That was just such raw anger that they were expressing. And they said, why did the children who fled survive? And our children died because they followed what the school told them to do. Yeah. And how do you answer that? Right. How do you answer that? So we said, we have to figure out what's the best way to train them. And that's what we push is training. There's also an adage that my brother always tells me, and that is that if somebody has a knife, you can add distance and that knife becomes less effective. But unfortunately with a gun, you can't outrun the bullet. So if you can run in a protected way, in other words, shielded by something or get out through a window or put a really solid cover between you and the shooter, that's effective, but you can't outrun a bullet. So how does that factor into this? Through tons of research, I'm telling you, the FBI still sticks with this escape. They actually filmed a new video to accompany the idea of run, hide, fight to say escape is your best option. Part of that is because how fast these are resolved. Right. So when the shooter comes in and shoots, we don't have a lot of situations where it's an extended amount of time. You know, the Navy Yard shooter was on the floor for an hour, basically. And there are a handful of other shooters who we've seen over a length of time. But most of the shootings, they come in, they have a plan, and they execute that plan. And when somebody makes a movement that isn't consistent with the plan they want, they have a tendency to fail. But when you're shooting a high-powered weapon, there's also accuracy issues, right? And it is difficult if you haven't done it a lot before. We see people take off. They do escape. In Virginia Tech and Norris Hall, there were two teachers who fled down the hallway and survived in Norris Hall. And that guy had time to kill a lot of people in Norris yeah. Hall. In another classroom in Virginia Tech, a teacher and his grad student held the door shut and all the students climbed out the window. They were in the second floor. He told them, get out the window, get out the window. He was a survivor from the Holocaust. And he told them to get out and they all jumped out and they all survived. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection? 
because it was digital. Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So tell us, what are the other big takeaways from your study of the Sandy Hook massacre that are important for people to know? I think we absolutely learned that even down at the elementary school level, we have to talk to people about what to do if it happens. And that's that run, hide, fight policy that was pushed out. But also we have to do a better job of, if you see something saying something, teaching people what to look for uh, from a prevention standpoint. That was probably the biggest thing. And we also worked on a program you might have heard of called Stop the Bleed, teaching people how to use tourniquets. And even though we were all told as kids never to put a tourniquet on because you'd make a leg fall off. That's wrong. Now all law enforcement carries tourniquets. People Mm -hmm. should use them. It saves lives. And even though the numbers of shootings have increased, I'll tell you that I see the casualty numbers proportionately going down. And that's so encouraging. And I think that's because better police response, better citizens knowing what to do. In the Uvalde massacre in Uvalde, Texas, that happened recently, my understanding is they had some of those med kits or emergency first aid kits stationed in the hallways that included things like that. But the problem is no one went into that classroom. And so before we talk to Jim, because I know you want to ask Jim about behavior, before we do that, I'd like to know from you, Kate, what you think about the lessons that you guys have learned and pushed out in training that happened in Sandy Hook. When you contrast that with the absolute lack of action from the authorities that went on for about an hour, we had a bunch of people on. 72 minutes. We've covered, yeah, we've covered Uvalde quite thoroughly, but it's really frustrating for me to hear that you guys, you know, have a lot of things that you learned in Sandy Hook that should have been input in place. And not, I'm not blaming you or the FBI. You guys have pushed it out. They were trained. Where's the message going? Where is the message going when you have a massacre in progress and police officers who have gauze pads with blood clotting, people calling, begging for help, being going on, and they're just standing around outside? I guess my first question to you is, those officers knew, right? They had to know that they're doing the wrong thing. We've learned over 20 years go in. You're right. Your anger is well-placed. They knew. And that's one of the most frustrating things is like Jim just said, they were trained in exactly this type of shooting response. They knew that they were supposed to go in and they became this group think and they stood in the hallways. If people aren't familiar with it, there were more than a hundred law enforcement officers 
at an elementary school in Texas where 19 children were killed, two adults, while the officers stood in the hallways. And the first officers who came in, the surveillance cameras tell us they came in and the shooting was still underway and they didn't go through the door to get to the shooter. And the people inside, many of them just bled out. It's terrible. It's it's. They certainly didn't use whatever whatever they were trained to do. They did not do it. it. I think it came from the top down. I think they were ordered to to stand down to get back out because of that idiot who was running that department. And and that I mean I just can't say enough bad things about that move because obviously there are people that could have been saved and they weren't. But that's that. But the point is. How do we prevent these things? What can we actually say that's going to get people educated to the point where they can help prevent it from happening, not stop it or address it after it happens? And I think behaviorally, the thing is that most of these shooters have a strong feeling of disenfranchisement. They feel disconnected. They do not feel like they are part of whatever group they find themselves in and they feel that other people are doing bad things to them. Now, that may or may not be accurate. That may be part of their psychology and they're turning things. And, and the thing about psychology, as you know, Catherine, is psychology is the filter through which we experience life. And so this is how I have often explained it, that it is a biopsycho and social problem, that you have to look at the genetics of the people that have a potential to do this then you look at the psychology and personality, and then you look at the events in their lives. The way to explain it very graphically in this situation is that the genetics loads the gun, personality and psychology aim it, and experiences pull the trigger. And all that means is there are three points at which we can intervene, right? Somebody might have a disposition, a predisposition to do something like this. But their personality and psychology are how they filter the experiences that they go through in life. And the same circumstances can affect different people in vastly different ways. Part of that is just how they look at them. And so if we know that most of these offenders are disenfranchised in some way, then we should start looking for those people, like actively Instead of waiting for active shooters, we should be active in looking for these people who feel disenfranchised, who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who don't feel accepted, and address those issues. Am I right? I absolutely agree. That's the reason that we do our podcast, Stop the Killing, so people can think to themselves, oh, maybe this person is a concern. And maybe they're not going to be a mass shooter, but maybe they're going to commit suicide. Most of the signs of suicide are the same signs you see for a mass shooter. You know, they're depressed and they have anxiety. But in addition to mental wellness issues, they have this ostracization that they create, whether it's real or not. They feel like they're outsiders. You know, you talk about training the law enforcement to stop these things, but we need to train the communities to be able to spot the leakage. You know, we're the eyes and ears, but it's the confidence to know what to look for and to pick up the phone and report it. And that's what we drive home every week, every episode if we can. Well, that's a great point, Sarah. And from a justice standpoint, that's what makes that kind of difficult. I mean, just because someone's buying guns or ammunition or, you know, dark clothing or driving around a school a bunch, 
None of those things are necessarily against the law. And so what do you report? And I think that in this country, especially, we have got to find a better way. We've got to figure out, you know, we've got 911, you guys have, I think, is it 311, your emergency calling in London? I love that you're asking her that question because I ask her that question every week and she always struggles with the answer. I break out in a cold sweat. It's 311, I think. It's, uh, it's 311. No, it's not. It's, it's, no, it's 999. It's 999. Nine, nine, nine. Oh, 999. Nine, nine. Okay, see, who knows? <laughs> anyway, you can call 911, but that's for, you know, a Emergencies. crime is yeah. being committed. It seems to me that we need a 311 or a 411 back in the old days. If you're old enough to remember, you could dial 411 for information to get a, somebody's phone number way back right. in the day. We need something like that. We need a commission. Like for us, after the Kennedy shooting, there was the Warren Commission. After 9-11, we had the 9-11 Commission. We need Stop the Killing Commission to come up with some real practical, real world solutions that would allow people to make these kinds of calls that are much more sort of mental health first responders than it would necessarily be criminal first responders, but we've got to find a way to do better because yes, all of these, the Sandy Hook killer, the guy from Uvalde, the one in Buffalo who killed at the grocery store, all of these people exhibited signs that Mm -hmm. someone noticed, but not one person necessarily saw all the signs to put together that this was going to be a mass shooter. And I think Kate, that to me is the hardest thing is one person might have one piece of information but you don't have the full picture and you don't have a reason to suspect this guy is going to become the next mass shooter because most of the time they're not. How do you know who is? I think the main thing that I've learned over this whole process with Catherine is it's above my pay grade to know what is important pieces of information. And if you've got a piece of the puzzle that feels a little bit icky, maybe somebody's put a piece of paper over their bedroom window next door. I wouldn't have reported that at the beginning of doing Stop the Killing. But now I realize, okay, it's my responsibility as a member of the community to actually go, well, that's unusual. That's giving me a feeling. I'm going to report that because I do realize that might be the last piece of the puzzle that law enforcement needs to take some action or a welfare check gets put into place. Yeah. Good point. We do have situations. We have had plenty of situations where the puzzle pieces are put together and shootings are stopped, but it takes the confidence. And there was one just recently where just short version is that somebody heard a kid talking about this violence that he thought he should do. And it wasn't so specific, but it was still reported to somebody. She just didn't feel like Sarah said, it was just an icky feeling. So she called the police and the police went out to the kid's house. It turns out that the dad said, yeah, we have guns here. He has access to all these guns. And you know, he did a consent search and he allowed them to look in the kid's bedroom. And he had like a plan written out, averted attacks. You just never know. And, right. and you report it to the police. If you don't want to report it to the police, find an anonymous reporting system, put it on the FBI's tip line and they'll get it to the department. Go ahead and call your school or your business the HR department or the threat assessment team that might be functioning at that organization. And as Catherine pointed out to me the other day, which I thought was genius, call everyone. You don't have to just call one of those. Call everyone. That's right. If you're worried that there's not going to be action taken, don't just put all your bets on one tip line. Yeah, I think that everyone can benefit by helping all your neighbors, helping Everybody who you see in this kind of situation, whether or not they have the potential of being an active shooter, they're human beings and especially disenfranchised human beings. They need help. They need your support. 
And if you can actually step up and help one kid, the ripple effect can be tremendous. Just be a good person. Even if you're a kid, don't be one of those people who piles on and bullies the person that is a little different or a little weird, a little strange in your class. Befriend the person. You might find out that's your best friend for life. All we have to do is treat each other a little bit more kindly. And I think we can prevent this kind of thing instead of just constantly having to deal with the aftermath of it. Spot on. Kindness goes so far. Kindness, kindness. We've had shooters report that they didn't shoot on Monday because the teacher said hello to him in the hall. Some answers are simple and some are more complex. I don't know what you guys think, but I think our big crossover episodes have been fabulous. And we can't wait to tell all our listeners again to check out your podcast, Stop the Killing. So great to see you guys. Thank you so much. And we hope your listeners will join us on Best Case, Worst Case, which they can get anywhere they get podcasts. That's a great podcast. Well, thank you both for coming on for us. And we were happy to be on with you. Thank you, Tane. Absolutely. It was great. Until next time. Thank you for listening and watching. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy, and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point 
when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.